Ladies and gentlemen, um, I'd like to welcome you here to the LSE for this, uh, I think, riveting talk that um, we've been able to put together, courtesy of CARA, the Council for um, Assisting Refugee Academics, and also uh, Lynn Roberts, who works in the Teaching and Learning Center here at the LSE. I'd like to extend my profound thanks to them for th their assistance in putting on this exciting event. Um, I am Dr. Sue Onslow. I am head of the Africa International Affairs Program here at LSE Ideas. This is part of the LSE's Africa Initiative, uh, which seeks to draw together the variety and indeed the, the range of work that is being done on Africa here at the LSE. I'd like to thank the LSE students who are sitting on the stairs. I'm delighted to see that this event is absolutely rammed. But the problem for us tonight is that this is a small venue, but then we have a great deal of competition with other lectures here. Um, I'd like to extend my thanks to, to Professor Shula Marks, who is chair of CARA's uh, Zimbabwe Committee. We're also delighted to welcome Dr. Alex Magaisa, who is a Zimbabwe academic, and also uh, Ms. Viola Chiso, um, who is a Zimbabwe teacher. What we'd like to do is to have very much an inclusive discussion on the state of Zimbabwe education during the course of the evening. Um, I'm delighted that Baroness Jane Bonham Carter, who is a passionate supporter of Zimbabwe, a life peer um, for the Liberal Democrats, and herself a very experienced journalist and producer, uh, will be chairing this event, but principally it gives me great pleasure to welcome Peter Godwin, um, an acclaimed author and journalist, uh, those of you who know his uh, writing on uh, Zimbabwe will, of course, know Makiwa. He will know The Crocodile Eats the Sun, and, of course, his latest book, The Fear. So I'd like to hand over, please, to Jane. Thank you. Um, I've been asked to start by um, saying a few words to you about CARA. Now, some of you might, might know about it, but some of those who don't. It was established in the 30s in response um, specifically the persecution of academics across Europe by fascist regimes. And it was founded by uh, um, a group of leading academics, including uh, William Beveridge, who of course was both a student here and um, was a director of the LSE. And it was founded to help thousands of Jewish academics um, and intellectuals who fled the Nazis. Um, among the 1,500 academics it assisted, 18 went on to win Nobel Prizes, quite apart from all the other uh, uh, you know, amazing uh, things they achieved. Um, and um, I've been asked to say, and I hope you will, that you will see in your black booklets um, that there is a fascinating book about, about uh, Cara's history by Jeremy Siegel, for sale outside, and I'd urge you to buy it. Um, now, of course, Cara's work did not end uh, with the defeat of fascism. Refugee academics have continued to, to come from across the world, and at the moment we're witnessing the um, so-called Arab Spring. How important that those who were driven out and exiled from their home countries can return to teach and lead and pass on skills and expertise to those who have risen up to throw out despots. And that thanks to CARA, among other organisations, they've been able to pursue their studies and that the next generation will benefit from their knowledge. But of course today we're here to talk about Zimbabwe and CARA's work in ensuring that Zimbabwean academics 
special knowledge and abilities contribute to the rebuilding of Zimbabwe and its educational system is vital. But it's not for me uh, to highlight this and the many other difficulties that Zimbabwe is battling today, but um, Peter Goblin is here to talk to us this evening. He is a Zimbabwean who seems to have had sort of every qualification. Um, he's been a soldier. He studied law at Cambridge and then international relations at Oxford. He's a documentary maker and a screenwriter. He's also an award-winning foreign, foreign correspondent and the author of, among others, this book, which I have put somewhere else, The Fear, anyway, <laughs> a book which passionately, personally, and, I mean, shockingly, catalogues Zimbabwe's descent into the situation it finds itself in today. The title, I believe, is taken from the fact the people of Zimbabwe have given this time its own name. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Chidudu, meaning the fear. Peter's subtitle is The Last Days of Robert McGarry, an event which Peter is heading home to celebrate at the beginning of the book. It's April 2008. In the front piece, Peter quotes Nelson Mandela. I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. These, I haven't actually heard these words before, I probably should have, but they resonate, resonated with me because I remember as a child, my father, who'd been a young man um, in the Second World War, expressing exactly these sentiments, that um, what he had experienced was the incredible courage of, of people around him, um, but courage of people who were frightened. And Peter's book chronicles incredible, extraordinary bravery. And I must say here, uh, and um, I haven't, I, I don't know Peter, so um, this is purely from my own reading of, of, of the book, that the bravery is not just of those he meets and whose stories he tells, but of Peter himself. He's clearly a man of great courage. Banned from the country he grew up in and having been declared an enemy of the state, Yet he returned covertly to tell the story of Mugabe's, uh, Mugabe's reign, I suppose. So I'm particularly glad to welcome a hale and hearty Peter Goldwyn tonight. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Can you all hear me? Yes? Um, I'm, I'm always nervous about talking to audiences um, that are predominantly comprised of academics um, because for most of my life I'm, I, I try and attract attention or popularize um, topics that, uh, that a lot of people aren't naturally interested in and that's something that often quite rightly makes academics bristle because they, they know the detail of what's going on. So you, so I'm, I'm I ask you to cut me some slack in that regard, and also in one other regard, um, I feel um, imposter syndrome creeping on, which is that I am not um, I'm not an expert on education by any means. And what I what I plan to do here, and um, 
I can't quite remember how long I'm supposed to talk for, but um, it's really sort of sketched the context in which the educational collapse takes place, because let's face it, it doesn't take place in isolation. It takes place with a generalized collapse and a spiral down into the vortex of failed statehood. Um, and it is, it is one of many facets of what is collapsing at, at the time. Um, uh, so, that, that when we open it up for questions, and if there are any very detailed um, questions about about the um, the position of education, and indeed what is being done, which is quite a lot right now, to try and rehabilitate it, um, we do have we do have two people on my right who know a lot more about it than I do, who who um, I would ask to help me with any of of the detail, but. <clears throat> The other thing which, the other, in terms of my um, fraudulent qualifications, I'd like to draw attention to a few more, which is that also I'm not resident in Zimbabwe, um, and I'm white, as you can probably tell. But other than that, though, other than that, though, I think I'm completely authentically an expert. Um, so bearing all of that in mind, also, the other thing is that, you know, what I've got to say I'm very aware is just my take on something. There are, there are many other takes on it, and a lot of them do actually depend, to some extent, on one's own experience of something. So what I've always tried to do in my books, um, and I promise you I'll stop apologizing after this, um, what I've tried to do in my books uh, is to always write in, in the first person with enough personal detail that you can take it under advisement and sort of figure out who I am, that I'm not writing in this sort of lofty um, third person, you know, kind of godlike narrator says this, this is how it is. You know, this is not necessarily how it is. This is how it seems to me. The other thing I've done, particularly in all the books, but in particularly this one, for, for, for uh, and very deliberately, is written in the present tense, excuse me. Um, it seems to me that often what happens in history, because it's inevitably written in hindsight, is that it sometimes sucks the juices out of the way things really happen. Just because things happen the way they do doesn't mean that was the way they were always going to happen. Things often, you know, they rest on this tiny fulcrum and could go either way and you don't recognize it at the time. Later on you look at something and it has this spurious air of inevitability. Well, it's not inevitable. And what happened in Zimbabwe was not inevitable. Um, and that's really what, what I want to start off with is the kind of the trajectory of what has happened to Zimbabwe, um, why it happened, and um, and perhaps you know to some extent uh, a portion, a certain amount of blame, or at least look at look at certain areas where blame isn't usually apportioned. Um, I was I was one of the Zimbabweans who went back to Zimbabwe after 1980 because. Um, it's easy to forget now, but in a sense, post-1980 Zimbabwe was the prototype rainbow nation, and that in that respect, Mugabe was very Mandela-like before Mandela ever emerged. Um, the propaganda that white Rhodesians um, believed, and actually most much of the Western world also believed at that point, was that Mugabe, if he got into power, which they were trying to stop by all means, was going to be racist, he was going to be Marxist, if not Marxist, Maoist. He was certainly going to nationalize everything. He was going to take farms away from, from whites. He was going to take over the mines. He was going to boot out the whites. He was going to, and, but most, most um, interestingly for the 
Western nations, especially the states, the United States, was that he would he would basically, in the Cold War context, he would be anti-Washington, even if he wasn't exactly pro-Moscow because he'd been supported by China, that he would certainly ally himself on, uh, against, against Western nations. And so in 1980, when he took over, um, there was generalized panic, certainly within the country. And I cataloged that in, in, I'm happy to say, the most academic of my books to date, which was a book called Rhodesians Never Die. Um, and I made a mistake with that book that I will never make again, and it's called Irony. Um, I will never put it in a title again, because um, Rhodesians Never Die, it was in quotes, and it was actually the refrain from a, a white soldier's, um, in fact, just a white Rhodesian um, sort of patriotic song. Um, and, and the subtitle of the book was something like, you know, The Collapse of White Rhodesia, 1970 to 1980. So self-evidently their death. But nevertheless, uh, it's, if, you, if you Google it, you'll see it comes up again and again as prima facie proof that I am at heart an, an unrequited, I mean, an unreconstructed roadie. So there you go. Um, but Rhodesians, Rhodesians Never Die, which um, is copiously footnoted, which I wrote with an Australian, a very talented Australian academic called Ian Hancock, um, is it, it starts really with that day where where the the election results come out and white Rhodesia is sort of aghast and you know because up until then they had been led to believe that um, the elections those 1980 elections would be won by a sort of coalition of Muzarewa um, UANC uh, um, seats and and Zapu in Como seats with the 20 I think it was white seats that were reserved in that first sort of weird Lancaster House constitution and that would be enough to sort of get on with it and in fact of course that's not what happened at all Mugabe won I think 57 seats in that first in that first um parliament and and was able to rule without anybody else and and Mugabe very quickly, as most of you will remember, I think, um, uh, gave an astonishing speech, really, um, that, was, that, that, that surprised certainly um, white Rhodesians and I think much the rest of the world, in which he gave notice that he wouldn't be nationalizing everything, that he wouldn't be kicking the white farmers out, um, and that the whites in general were, uh, were welcome to stay as long as they became Zimbabweans. And, and, and he, it was a very reconciliatory speech. And in particular, he said to the white farmers, and I think this is important, uh, it's important to note because it, it plays into what, what, you know, what subsequently happens. Um, he says to the white farmers, don't leave. What I, if you want to contribute to the New Zimbabwe, what you need to do is go back to your farms and grow food and grow tobacco and export crops and one thing and another. The only reason I think it's important to note, and this is just a footnote, um, I mean, the, the, the land issue is a deeply complicated issue. And at its heart, it has a terrible um, inequity, which is that land is stolen. I mean, that's... That's just a fact that everybody has, you know, has to understand. But I think that it gets more complicated in 1980 where you have a, um, a, a democratically voted new black elected prime minister, as he then was, put out that sort of um, invitation because it's quite interesting because it seems to me that you could argue um, that that, that um, becomes a kind of a, a social contract, if you like, to say that's the point at which white farmers are going to get out of the country and they're asked to stay. I, I do actually think, though, that that invitation had, a, had a, an, an implicit codicil, a sort of intrins intrinsic to it, which was that you can stay, and it wasn't just to the whites, it wasn't just to white farmers, it was to the whites in general. You can stay on 
and you can you can have your farms and you you can do well and to the other white technocrats and things in town you can have your nice houses in the northern suburbs and your swimming pools and your whatever but here's the deal you've you've had your hundred years of rule and you're done now and now you you mustn't cause trouble you mustn't you know you you mustn't uh, complicate the business of governing um, and you mustn't push back in a sense and i think that's um you, you know that that I mean, to some extent, as a sort of whether one thinks it's a Faustian pact or not, that was what happened in 1980. And what you see after that, it seems to me, very quickly, is whites withdrawing into what is essentially an expat existence. They go, they pull back into, um, you know, sports clubs and whatever, and they become, in many ways, um, notwithstanding the 20 seats and the what, you know, those all sort of become irrelevant. Um, uh, and they and they pull back into that into into the sense that they are no longer it seems to me fully citizens as a group as a group they're no no longer they they may feel that they're white they're white Africans they're white Zimbabweans and whatever but in terms of their of their political influence their their economic power they are allowed to retain their economic um, power to some extent as long as they give up all political power. Now, of course, the two are related, I understand that, but there is this element where they, they also, in many respects, often quietly support the coffers of ZANU-PF when they're asked to, especially the farmers. Um, the, reason that the, the reason that I'm just sort of noting this in passing is that there is, there is a trajectory, a conventional wisdom about what has happened to the person of Robert Mugabe himself, and I'm not suggesting that any of you in this room are um, are ignorant enough to, to fall for this. But, you know, I live in America, and in general, in terms of the sort of, the, if this were a Hollywood movie, movie the trajectory, the, the arc, you know, the, the, the arc of development of Mugabe from liberation leader fated by the world through to, you know, to, to, to sort of, you know, villainous autocrat who everybody loves to hate, um, it, the way it's seen, it's, it, it, and it's obviously oversimplified, is essentially like this, that, that he fights a just war against recalcitrant white settler rule. He gets into power at the point where he could have been vengeful, racist, etc., etc. He isn't. In fact, he finds it in his heart to be enormously generous and reconciliatory, etc., etc. And then everything, the, the Zimbabwe then becomes this sort of... Um, this, uh, this, this sort of emblematic, if you like, a bellwether of just how well Africa can do. It becomes the shining beacon on the hill, certainly in southern African um, terms, of just of just how Africa can go right and how well it can be ruled. And and in particular, the thing that's always looked at and held up is this astonishing success story with education. That you have a situation where you know the, the literacy rate soars. I mean, you know, goes up and in, in, well into the 90th percentiles. Um, uh, but not just education, health, and many other things. It's seen as this glorious country, and it shows you, you know, that w what Africa can do. And then in the late 1990s, Mugabe has a rush of blood to the head. By now, his trusty Ghanaian, Ghanaian wife Sally has died. She's seen as a tempering influence. The young Grace, who's many decades his his, his junior, is on the scene, and he he becomes what we now recognize as a sort of, you know, a, a, a totem of, 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 um, of misrule. And, and my, I mean, I think that has almost no accuracy at all. I mean, my experience of it is I experienced it completely differently. And what, what the thesis I'd like to put forward is that whatever else you think about Mugabe um, and, you know, whatever else he's done, 
I think the one thing you can't accuse him of is inconsistency. I think he's been absolutely consistent um, from the very beginning. I think what's happened is that the world has changed around him. We've all changed. Um, and let me, let me tell you roughly why I think this would be the case. Um, if you look at, if you look at just you know, purely from a point of view of his, of his political tactics, um, I mean, what you, have, what you have, which I won't go into in any detail, is you have some very bloody feuds in the, in the, it, within ZANU and, and, and Zipa and all sorts of, there are various phases, which, many of which are settled very bloodily. Um, and ultimately, Mugabe comes out on top of that. You have the war itself, which, which though very probably entirely morally defensible, is nevertheless a violent um, uh, uh, reaction to a problem. In other words, you, 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 you can't unseat a recalcitrant settler government without going to war, and that's what he did, and it worked. Um, in 1980, in those first elections, those first democratic elections, I'm sure most of you will remember, what was supposed to happen in terms of Lancaster House was that the three armies in the field, n n namely um, Zipra, Zanla, and the Rhodesian forces, were supposed to pull back um, the Rhodesian forces into barracks and um, Zipra and Zanla into assembly points. Um, and by and large, they did, except for, except for Zanla, where they kept out several thousand of their best guerrillas, of their most experienced guerrillas, and replaced them with, with mujibas. The way, the way that it was done was that to get, we roughly knew what numbers were supposed to be there, um, and to keep the numbers, to keep those numbers consistent, um, you had to show that you could strip down and put back an AK-47. That was how you could tell if you were a real guerrilla. So people were trained to do that and went in. That's what made the numbers up. And those guerrillas went around. Those those Zanla guerrillas went around to say to the people um, in the rural areas, mostly vote for us or Aluta continua, the war will continue. Now, the interesting thing about it is that almost certainly, I mean, in fact, certainly, uh, Zanu would have, would have won the seats it won anyway. Um, it, you know, it, it would have won. Um, but what's interesting to me is that as an organization and as a leader, they weren't prepared to take that risk. And what it shows at an early stage, at a stage where you'd say, well, it doesn't make much difference, does it, at this point, that what he's interested, far more interested in at this point, is power rather than democracy. That, that, that democracy is only of interest if it delivers the right result. And when it doesn't, it's of no interest at all. That what you don't really have here is someone who's democratic at heart. It's not really what one's <coughs> fighting for. One's fighting for power. The next political challenge that comes along comes along in in Matsbililand, um, in you know pretty quickly 82, 83, um, with the so-called dissidents. And I think that, I mean, I was a I was a lawyer at that point. I, I had come back to Zimbabwe, as I said, and I was a lawyer, um, and I represented um, the. Joshua and Como's generals, um, I mean, and, and some, some other officers, but inc including Demita de Bengua and Lookout Masuku, and these guys who were all charged with high treason um, very, very early on, um, seven of them, and we got them off, um, and they were immediately rearrested under the emergency regulations, which, of course, if you recall, were one of the main ways in which the Smith government ruled. And in fact, it's interesting that many of those things 
uh, many of those methods by which Smith ruled, Mugabe just took over and they never really left the statute book. So that way of ruling by regulation through, through uh, government gazette on a Friday and, and bypassing parliament if you needed to, that was, that was what the Smith government did and Mugabe did exactly the same. Nothing really changed. And you also see in many respects, you know, the character of the media as well. You see the Rhodesia Herald very quickly becoming the Herald and sort of you know, almost being the same paper, but just but just backing a different a different group, and the same with with ZBC Z, uh, ZTV. Um, you see, in Matabeleland, the reaction to that problem, um, and I'm not going to I'm not going to go into any great detail. It's a huge subject as to what was really going on in Matabeleland and to the extent to which there was a dissident problem. Um, there was a real problem in so far as when the Zipra cadres returned from Zambia, from their bases in Zambia, they had with them, because they had shared bases, they had many, um, they had um, people from, from MK, from Kontowe Siswe, from the, from the ANC's armed wing, and they had fully expected that on independence in Zimbabwe, what would happen is that MK would base up in, in Matsbiland and would, and would infiltrate into apartheid South Africa, that that's what would happen. And it's interesting to note that that never happened, that actually Mugabe didn't allow that to happen. He didn't allow MK to use Zimbabwe as a launching pad for guerrilla incursions. And, um, and Mozambique did, even Botswana did, um, but, but Zimbabwe didn't. And if Zimbabwe had done, and bear in mind that for a lot of this period, Robert Mugabe was the chairman of the frontline states, he was one of the main drum beaters, you know, anti-apartheid drum beaters, etc. But the one thing that would have, that would have probably, he could have contributed more than anything else, which is to allow MK to go in through the Limpopo, and thus creating, you know, a very, very long um, border that had to be defended in South Africa. That one thing he wouldn't allow to happen. And I, I believe that there was, there were deals done. I mean, that there were deals done that basically, that the South Africans would stop their destabilizing um, activities in Zimbabwe if, if Mugabe agreed not to allow MK to go in. But they were also, South African intelligence was also supplying a lot of, um, a lot of the intelligence on what, what the dissidents were doing, what was going on in Matabili land. And, uh, and a lot of it was exaggerated, I, I believe. But the point being that there was a problem, a perceived problem. And the way that, again, the way that, that Mugabe and ZANU-PF deal with it is that they send down the North Korean trained 5th Brigade and they kill probably 20,000 civilians. Um, and then, interestingly, what they do, and I ask you to bear this in mind given where we are at the moment, is having, having completely exhausted ZAPU, when having, having, having killed so many of these civilians, um, they then, they then co-opt them into, you know, in, there's a so-called unity accord, um, which in a sense is the sort of the GNU of 1985, 1986. They pull them in and you never really hear from them again. I mean, you know, Como is, is, I think, deputy, I can't remember whether we were presidential or prime minister, we moved over by then, but he was number two. Dibengua, you know, was home affairs, but they quickly took away the bit of home affairs that really matters. You know, very, very similar tactics to the ones that you're seeing now, that you bring someone in, that you pretend it's going to be power sharing, but actually what it is, it's, it, it ends up being emasculating. Um, the problem is, the problem with ZAPU was always going to be different because ZAPU had, it had been shown in the 1980 elections that they were 
primarily going to be ethnically defined. In other words, they had an ethnic ceiling to their voter appeal. It's just, you know, it, they couldn't break out of their Matabililand hint hinterland. And so they were never going to be a major political threat overall. I mean, they could be a threat in, in, re in conjunction with other parties, possibly, but they were never a huge threat, so they didn't have much um, bargaining position. After the, after the Unity Accord, um, there's, there isn't violence for some time. I mean, there's, you don't really see anything until 1999-2000 when, and the main reason for that is that Zimbabwe, as I've just said, is, is, it is essentially a one-party state for that period of time. So there's, there are no political opponents to be beaten up and to be intimidated and to be, and to be repressed. Um, in 2000, when an opposition arises once more, what we see is ZANU-PF and Mugabe reverting to its default, which is, a, which is vi a violent reaction to political opposition. So it seems to me that, you know, for us to suddenly throw our hands up in the late 90s and early 2000s and say, what's come over the man, is entirely naive and simplistic and kind of the wrong question. Nothing's come over the man. The man has done what he's always done, and it's served him pretty well in the past, and he's continued to do it. Now, the blame for some of this, I mean, the, 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 I, I find it a little rich sometimes when there's so much caterwauling in the West about what Mugabe's come and the sort of YOY and the hand-wringing and whatever. It seems to me that we, we in the international system, I'm, to, I'm using we in that sort of broadest context, have a, a, a measure of contributory blame to the situation arising in the first place. Um, I think that in 1980, there was this generalized relief that Mugabe would be moderate. There was, so, there was such palpable relief in Washington and London and, and among white community in Harare that, um, that nobody wanted to look too closely. For example, you know, it, 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 there, there was general knowledge. I was, I was there at the time. There was general knowledge that Zanda guerrillas were, that too many of them were out in the field uh, in, in, in those elections. But, you know, let's just overlook that because he probably is going to win anyway. So that nothing was done there. In, in 1983-84, during Gokura Hundi, during the Matsbi Lamaskas, which I was a young, as a young reporter covered and went into the Kordendorf areas and, and, and spoke to eyewitnesses and saw a lot of the stuff myself. I mean, saw, saw wounded and, and, and murdered and the antelope mine shafts and things where they were throwing people down and wrote about it. Um, and wrote about it principally for my main employer at that point, which was the which was the Sunday Times here in London, who, to their credit, you know, we, we ran three front-page stories on successive weeks saying exactly what was happening. And there was almost no reaction at all. There was nothing in the UN. There was nothing here. There was nothing in London. There was nothing, the, the international community, there were no demarches or anything at all. There was nothing. Um, and the reason there was nothing, it seems to me, was twofold. Um, that at that point, and this feeds into the, sort of my earlier thesis, um, at that point, Mugabe was very effectively exploiting two smoke screens. The first smoke screen was obviously the Cold War, um, insofar as because he, because he hadn't gone red, because he seemed to be one of ours, then we were happy to have him in our camp, and therefore he wasn't to be overly criticized or undermined in any way. And bear in mind that at that point, you know, this was a world where the West was happy to support people like Mobutu and what was then Zaire, even though he was running a palpably you know, violent and, and dishonest regime, and many others, which I won't go into. But, but so that, you know, in those days, we didn't really care. So so that smokescreen is good, certainly till 1990. When the Berlin Wall comes down, suddenly 
the West turns around to Africa and says, oh, oh, the game's going to change. And I find this interesting insofar as if you bear in mind that Africa starts to become independent, sub-Saharan Africa starts to become independent in 1957 with Ghana. Um, so, so those very first African nations, as they emerge for the first time as independent nations, um, uh, they are born straight into the heights of the Cold War. And what we say to them in the West is we say, what, you know, the message we say to them, listen, we're not over-bothered about you being democratic. We're not over-bothered about accountability and, you know, human rights and all that sort of thing. We're really wor worried about one thing, and that's that you're on our side and not on Moscow's. And as long as you do that, we'll send aid, we'll, we'll encourage investment, we'll do all those sort of things, So as long as you're anti-communist. And so an entire generation of the, and a really singularly important generation for the first generation of African leaders of these new countries are brought up in a world and sort of that's the world they're acculturized into politically and acclimatized into that those are the rules of the international game and that carries on and carries on all the way until 1990 when suddenly we say oh no 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 it's all different now now we've got we've come over all humanitarian we want you to be accountable we want this thing called good governance you've got to be clean you've got to be all and and so and then it, it, it seems to me that you know we, we do bear a certain responsibility for suddenly changing the rules at this point and for having ha had these other rules for so long, especially as it's a time in, in Africa's life as a continent, which is absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial. Um, I mean, there's other, there's, you know, there's, there, are, there are many other ironies about the, the continuing colonial influence, I mean, not least of which is that the very countries that are coming into existence as a result of African nationalism are themselves... Um, colonial constructs, you know, from the Congress of Berlin and one thing or another, and are, you know, m in many cases, strange, strangely shaped and lumping together mutually mistrustful people, and some of them have no hope of ever being economically viable. But yet, the, one of the very first things that the OAU, um, when it's formed, agrees on in its, in its sort of charter is the sovereignty of what are, in effect, colonial borders. Now, that's, it's, it's an almost intractable problem, but I just put it out there as just yet another thing that we've contributed to the fact that Africa has had you know, more than its fair share of problems in, in, finding, in finding stability after that. The other smokescreen that Mugabe used very effectively, and in some senses it's even stronger because it's closer, because he has a, a singular role in it, <clears throat> is the persistence of apartheid South Africa until 93. So from 1980 till 1993, for 13 years, the first 13 years of being in power, Mugabe has this, that he has apartheid Pretoria to the south of him. And the South Africans initially start out by trying to destabilize Zimbabwe. There's the, they blow up the Air Force planes and they do various other things. Then I think they back right off after the deal is done and after M Mugabe agrees that he actually won't allow Mkontoes's way to go in f across the Limpopo. But nevertheless, Mugabe is seen, you know, very preeminently on the world stage as being the, 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 the cheerleader of anti-apartheid forces. <coughs> and the problem with that is that it means that to criticize Mugabe, is, it, it becomes very easy for him to make you look as though you're an apartheid apologist, which is what he did with me over Matsbilan, just and it was made very easy because I was a white Zimbabwean anyway. But as soon as you say, well, hang on, this, this, you, know, you start to criticize him for his own record, you, you, it looks like you're doing Pretoria's job for it um, and that you're providing succor to apartheid. And, and, and Mugabe was very skillful at spinning that, and that also made a lot of people back off, I think. So uh, it, it seems to me that though, for those reasons, I mean, the Matabeleland thing in particular, 
I was enormously, as a reporter, and I was a baby reporter then, I was a rookie reporter, I was kind of, I don't know what I expected, but I certainly didn't expect quite the resounding silence um, that, that it, it was met with. And it, this also has a footnote, which, which uh, without wanting to sound too personal, but it does bring it home. I, I mean, it's a message I'd like to give in, 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 a pre in another prestigious university, is that after the Matabeland massacres, 83, 84, the main Matabeland massacres, in 87, the British government gives Mugabe a knighthood for services to, um, to Anglo-Zimbabwe relations. And at roughly the same time, um, the University of Edinburgh, and a lot of other universities, but the University of Edinburgh in particular is one I'm interested in, gives him an honorary um, doctorate. And I was banging on for years after that, saying, why is he still... I mean, he doesn't have the night anymore, that's been taken away, but he still, until relatively recently, he still had this doctorate, and I was banging on in editorials in the New York Times, and uh, in the Times, rather, here, saying, you know, why, why does he still have this? And eventually, Edinburgh withdrew it. But when they withdrew it, they wrote a letter a public letter, they, they, they accompanied the, with, the, the withdrawal of the, of the honorary doctorate with a letter saying that, um, however, they couldn't have possibly known in 1987, you know, what was going on, and therefore it you know, wasn't really their mistake. I mean, and I felt like saying, at least, you know, fess up to the fact that you just, um, in terms of due diligence, all you had to do was look at the front page of the Sunday Times. It was hardly <laughs> hidden away in some, you know, I mean, I mean, it was, you know... <laughs> You know, and so I got. I mean, I felt like the whole the whole withdrawal of the of the of the um, of the honorary doctorate was was done dishonorably. And I think, in fact, I think a in some senses an opportunity was lost to reform a system where you know where before you give these things, do due diligence, have people look at it, and you know look at it and make sure that you're not giving doctorates to people who will later embarrass you, or in this case, who have already embarrassed you, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing it to. But yet again, I mean, as you can see the theme I'm getting at, these, these, you know, what you have in all these cases are basically people seeing what they want to see, rather than what's really there. And so, in 99-2000, um, when, when this, when, I mean, in 99, essentially, when Mugabe loses the referendum on, on his, um, that was supposed to on, on the new constitution, um, uh, uh, and and begins the the, um, the 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 so-called land reform, where where so-called war vets go onto the farms and chase off white farmers. Then all of a sudden, if you and if you chart, and people have done this, if you chart the media coverage just in this country since we're here, um, and and look at what what happens, look at the coverage over Matabeland land and many other things in between, and then look what happens when war vets start going onto white farms. I mean, it shoots from very you know, almost no interest to sort of suddenly becomes you know tabloid gold. It's everybody's doing it. It's this huge story. Everybody wants to do it. And the inescapable conclusion is that our media is essentially racist insofar as it only really gets interested in a story when whites are involved. And that when blacks, when it's, you know, so the South Africans have this terrible phrase that they used and that, and that the media then swallowed. And I, was, I worked uh, for later as a um, correspondent in South Africa for the last six years of apartheid. They coined this phrase black on black violence as though it sort of didn't really count somehow. It wasn't sort of real violence. It was just some sort of black on black violence. Um, and certainly you could see that, you know, the difference in the coverage of the white farm invasions to the coverage in um, Matabili land is extraordinary. I mean, these are two completely different worlds. Um, and, and 
I, I've, I mean, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody insofar as I've, you know, I've, I've written about white farmers, I've been commissioned to do it, I've gone there, I've sat on the last day of white farms, etc., etc. And it's all very sad and it's very moving and I'm not suggesting it, you know, I'm not suggesting this isn't a story to be covered. However, you have to keep it in proportion, since, 19, since 2000, um, you know, the, the, the land invasions have been going on for pretty much a decade and you have almost daily situations where you have war vets and white farmers often both sides are armed, if not with actual, you know, guns, <coughs> then with various other weapons. Um, and in that entire time, in 10 years of almost daily confrontation, only f about 15 white farmers have been killed, one five. So, you know, in, in human rights terms, in terms of, you know, just as a, as a sort of humanitarian thing, you know, the, the actual, what, what's happened to the white farmers shouldn't, you know, ha has been a way bigger story than it deserved to be. Now, the knock-on effect economically has been vast. I mean, absolutely vast. And obviously was the beginning of the kind of unraveling of the economy. Um, and, that, and that is true. But that's not the way the story has, has been covered. Um, uh, so really, my, my, in that sense, I feel like um, it must be interesting, you know, as Robert Mugabe drives around Harare in his bomb-proof Mercedes and looks through the tinted windows um, and realizes as he drives to Harare that, you know, none of the Harare constituencies voted for, voted for him, um, you know, he, that he's essentially in enemy territory. It must be, you can, you can almost sense his, you know, his palpable frustration in two ways. You can see him thinking, for a starters, that you know, how can you how can you not vote for me? If it weren't for me, you wouldn't have a vote. And and this brings me on to the the danger with 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 post liberation governments, which comes with the territory. That where you've had a revolution, and that's what you had in Zimbabwe, where you've had a real revolution, where you've had an armed struggle, um, uh, you 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 enter that 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 group which then comes to power, having had an armed struggle. Albeit comes to power through through democratic elections, there is this awful temptation to become messianic, to become pol politically mon monopolistic, and to say we have freed the country, we 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 now rule because of this historic right that we are the controllers of political legitimacy, that no other party, no other political party is authentic. Um, and if you look around Southern Africa at the nations that had um, armed struggles, either against settler um, governments or against colonial governments, every single party that comes to power through that struggle is still in power today. So you, from the ANC in South Africa to SWAPO in Namibia to the MPLA in Angola, ZANU-PF in Zimbabwe and Frelimo in Mozambique, they're all still in power. Not a single one has, has gone. And the reason that I think this is, this is, this is important beyond, be, beyond just that generalization is that I think that it has affected um, the way that South Africa has dealt with Zimbabwe. And whether we like it or not, South Africa is the key to actually, in practical terms, solving Zimbabwe. And it always has been. We look at the precedent. After the, after the, um, after the revolutions in Portugal in, help me, 74, 75, whenever, um, uh, and, and after Mozambique and Angola become, become independent very, very quickly and start supporting guerrillas, um, and South Africa's buffer system where they had these sort of white countries, you know, Angola, um, 
um, Southwest Africa, Rhodesia, um, Mozambique, suddenly that's collapsed and it no longer makes any sense for South Africa to support um, Rhodesia, sort of beleaguered, illegal, doing South Africa a lot of damage on the international, um, in international fora. Um, John Foster, who was then the Prime Minister in South Africa, essentially phones Ian Smith up and says, you're done, it's over, negotiate the best deal you can, it's finished, you, people can come south, south of Limpopo, and that's, it's done. And Smith didn't accept it, and sort of, you know, sort of was saying he was going to somehow go it alone. And what happened was that the, the, the goods trains from South Africa, which Rhodesia relied on completely, suddenly started developing mechanical problems and one thing or another, and it was made absolutely clear that without South African support, it really was finished. And from then onwards, very quickly, you had a series of negotiations. They were, the first ones weren't successful, but basically the writing was on the wall and it was just a question of time. And, and one of the little asides I wanted to make on this is that Interestingly enough, um, when Ian Smith died not that long ago, I was asked to write um, not so much an obit, but a kind of appreciation of the extent to which he was responsible for what had ultimately happened in Zimbabwe. Because one of the things that Zimbabwe's collapse has, um, has sort of unleashed or, or, or is a lot of sort of you know, bogus nostalgia for the good old days because you know, suddenly Rhodesia didn't look as, quite as awful as it was seen through the lenses of you know, how bad Zimbabwe became. But in many respects, I think, you know, Smith's, Smith continues to bear a lot of responsibility for what, did, what, what ultimately did happen in Zimbabwe. We've already talked about the emergency regulations, the way he manipulated the media, and all those sort of things which Mugabe smoothly inherited and continued to use. Um, but also the fact that, that Smith went through you know, several layers of much more moderate leaders that refusing to compromise and ended up, ended up really with what he deserved, which is Mugabe. He met someone who was uh, essentially as kind of tough and, and, and as, um, I think, in, in, in many ways, as sort of, you know, rigorously power-oriented uh, as, as he was. Um, and today, nothing has changed in so far as South Africa is still, if there was the political will in South Africa to solve the Zimbabwe problem, the Zimbabwe conflict, it could be done very quickly. It really could. Um, and the South Africans hate me whenever I say this and say, well, what about Zimbabwe's sovereignty, blah, blah. I mean, it's, it's really, it's just a Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe's own industries, as well as education, all of industry and everything else has been, you know, is moribund. It's been destroyed. And nobody is putting money in there. No one's going to invest in Zimbabwe until there's a resolution. And let's face it, the GNU, the Government of National Unity, is not a resolution. It's a sort of band-aid. It's a transitional stage. And if, I don't know how many of you have read Tendai Beatty's remarks in the last day or so but I mean he he's pretty much saying it's over as far as I can see I mean I you know I know there's some rhetoric involved but 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 the the GNU is reaching a point where I I, I think it can't go on much longer anyway it's already it's already outlived its usefulness um uh, and I think that 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 the South Africans essentially having bullied the MDC into the GNU in the first place um just after the 2008 elections um, what they were really working for, I mean, because they are the facilitator. They're the facilitator as far as SADAC's concerned, they're the facilitator as far as the AU is concerned, they're the facilitator as far as the Western world is concerned. You know, Smith, uh, uh, Bush famously said to, it was then Tabo Mbeki, who was the pre president of South Africa, You're my, he's my point man on Zimbabwe, and that's essentially what the West has done, that South Africa being in that position has allowed the international community to essentially abrogate Zimbabwe as a problem. It's not, you know, Barack Obama's list of African conflicts that he's concerned with, I think Zimbabwe comes 
fifth. I think it's fifth. It's not, you know, it's not at the top because South Africa's dealing with it and it's fine. That's what's going to happen. But the South Africans t tend to do two things. Um, the one is, I mean, my, my theory of it is that because of this liber because this idea that liberation governments in a macro sense should stick together and that for any one of for any one liberation government to collapse in the face of a challenge from a post liberation party which is what the mdc is um, that is bad news for all the other ones it's not good for them because it shows that they're vulnerable that they can be vulnerable that you can you can have a situation where where um, uh, um, where, where the electorate can turn against you notwithstanding the revolution and the sacrifice and all, all of the all, all, all of the kind of mythology that goes that goes with that um, uh, and I think that um, what what, what the ANC has been trying to do, and its policy has clearly changed between Thabo Mbeki and Zuma, uh, is that it had been trying to create, to reform ZANU-PF, which is sort of what happened with Frelimo. If you look at what Frelimo used to be and what Frelimo is now, I mean, you'd be forgiven for thinking these are two entirely different parties. They're, they share almost no political, um, uh, sorry, economic policies at all, um, have completely remade themselves. But the one thing they've kept is the name. They're still Frelimo, they're still the Liberation Government, and that's the key thing. Um, and I think they would, the, the South Africans have been trying to figure out a way to create a sort of ZANU-PF light, some sort of reformed ZANU with maybe a technocrat in charge. But I don't think ZANU-PF is reformable. And I think the problem is um, that in many of these other countries, you've, you've, you, you have had successful transfers of power within these liberation parties from one leader to the next. And that's what we haven't managed to do in Zimbabwe. That in Zimbabwe, the liberation party has ossified into a personal cult, into a cult of personality. And that Mugabe you know, has become, it, it has become a real dictatorship, not a dictatorship by a party as such, but by, by a person. And you read all these theories about how, how Mugabe is now run by the generals and one thing or another. And I don't, I don't believe that. I mean, I think part of the problem is that a lot of that... Um, analysis you see from people who are doing pan-African stuff and they superimpose a civil military relations um, um, framework that might work in West Africa on liberation, liberation governments in Southern Africa and it doesn't work because there isn't tension between the military side and the civilian side because there is no military side and civilian side. The military move in and out of government. They, one minute this guy you know, is, is the perm secretary or he's running <coughs> the ministry or whatever and then he goes back to being a military officer. There's no, that you, you can't really make any distinction between them. I think that what has happened is that in, in my experience of, of watching it closely and, of, and, and of, of talking, and I've interviewed a lot of them for this book, of talking to a lot of people who worked very closely with Mugabe in the early days and on, is that he's never been a micromanager. That's just not his style. That's not what he does. He's, sort of, he's, he's been a very good delegator. He never puts things in writing. He never talks to people in groups. So you have the weekly cabinet meeting um, where he often says very little but when he calls cabinet ministers in to talk to them otherwise, it's always done singly. And so they never quite know what other people are being told. And I think sometimes he actually tells them different things. So that, you know, he, and he manages this thing that, uh, that, that dictators often do, which is that you manage simultaneously to be ubiquitous and remote somehow. You know, that every, you're everywhere. You're on the flag, on the, on, the, on the posters, on the, you know, by law, you have to have a photograph of Mugabe in every single place of business in the country. And yet, you know, you, you don't know. You, you can see him on, he'll go on ZTV and talk for three hours, 
and you'll walk away and say, well, what did he say? You know, that, that, you, that there's actually nothing you can get your teeth into at all. It's a, essentially a kind of recitation of the liberation mantra, but nothing really about how we're going to pro- solve the terrible problems that we're facing right now. So, so that's, I think, I mean, that's part of the problem which, which I think the ANC faces in trying to, in, in its previous attempts under Tabo to, um, to, to sort of reform and make ZANU-PF palatable again in the way that Frelimo managed to sort of re- renew itself. Um, I, I also think that, that what started to creep in, and I, and I, and I regret it, although I, I hope this phase is over, is again sort of under, under Tabo and Becky, this, this, this creeping new tendency that in Africa, when the wrong people um, won or indeed lost an election, it was declared a draw. So we started seeing this, <coughs> excuse me, in Kenya. So basically, it was a reward for bad losers. If you if you lost and then you created violence and one thing that they said, oh okay, okay, quick, quick, stop, stop, it's a draw. You can both have a government of national unity, you can get together. Okay, is that all right? And then that's it. and then what happens in in the Cote d'Ivoire where the same thing happens? Alassane Ouattara wins instead of Laurent Gbagbo. Then suddenly. <laughs> Bizarrely, it was Thabo Mbeki who, by then, was no longer president, but was 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 mandated to go and try and see if he could sort it out. He he, he tried to do the same thing. Said, "Let's call it a draw. We'll have a, you can share, you know." And so, which seems to me to be ultimately anti-democratic. I mean, there's really no point in going through elections if you if you end up saying when it doesn't work out the way you want it to work, you just you call it a draw. But the much more serious objection to it is it doesn't work. It makes problems. They just they fester and they sit there and they often get worse. And my worry in Zimbabwe is that we think that everybody's coexisting, that they're in the GNU together, and that although the GNU is um, is observed more in its um, in, in, in its uh, in, in its dishonour than, than 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 in being kept. I mean, there are so many. There are so many ways in which it hasn't been kept at the moment, from ambassadors to, to provincial governors to, to ministers to the, the Reserve Bank. To, you can go on and on. I mean, you know what they are. That, that really, um, the, the MDC would be fully justified um, to pull out you know, at any time, because the GNU has not been observed. Um, that I, uh, but I, I worry now that what will happen, essentially, I mean, uh, un- when Zuma came in, I think that the MDC thought that things would improve very substantially for them, because because in that in that Polokwane um, uh, in, in that Polokwane ANC Congress where Zuma um, uh, overturned Thabo Mbeki as leader of the party, um, he did so with the support of Kasatu, with the South African unions, and. Um, uh, the MDC, in its origins, is very much a union party. It, it was born out of the ZCTU. That that's you know Morgan Shangarai had led the ZCTU, and in many ways, the ZCTU had been pliant, had been part of ZANU-PF essentially more or less, and then it broken away in the in the 90s, and then it ultimately formed a new party and attracted other supporters as well. But that um, they were always very much supported by the South African. Um, um, Confederation of Trade Unions, Kasatu, uh, who had who had helped Zuma to power. So when Zuma came to power, I think that that the MDC, I know the MDC were cock a hoop and thought this is great. Now you know we just have to wait and it's all going to be fine. They had a weird interregnum. Do you remember there was a period where Zuma was already head of the ANC, but he wasn't president, and you had Modlanthe was there for a year or so. So there was a sort of weird period where they had to wait, but they just thought well, it was just a question of time. And then when Zuma really gets his feet under the desk, this is going to be s- sorted. We'll really have. Um, um, a free and fair election, and we'll get into power, and that'll be that. And, in, and as we know, that didn't happen. Um, and I, 
I think it didn't happen for a number of reasons. I think the macro reasons, the one we've already talked about, that Zuma realised that actually, you know, that, that whole, you know, the ANC was having, was being threatened by various other people. I mean, in ways that I don't think were really serious and won't be serious for a number of years. I've just come back from South Africa where I was watching the local municipal elections. Um, and, um, and it was clear from what happened, if you remember, to COPE, the break, that broke, tried to break away from the ANC and was sort of never heard of again, in a sense. And they actually had a liberation, you know, they had liberation people in them and it didn't help them. Um, and and, and in, in South Africa, the DA is, you know, is, is hampered by many things, most of all that it's not really supported by blacks in any great number. I think they got 6% in the local elections. But clearly, the ANC is not seriously threatened in national elections. They're in, they're in the 60s, somewhere percentile. And they won't be, in my view, for some considerable period of time. The ANC has so much political credit in that sort of, you know, in that liberation bank that they can misgovern the country w w for, you know, at least another decade without it really, you know, effect affecting their chances of staying in power. Weirdly, I think what might start to happen, and, it's, and you can see it starting to happen, is that there might start to be a way in which South Africans, even black South Africans, find it okay to vote a protest vote in the local elections, where while still voting ANC in the national elections, that you know, if you're really annoyed with service delivery in your township and you and you, and the fact that your local on the ground ANC councillors are corrupt, that you would vote for a you know you would vote either for an independent or another party or something, but but that nationally you still you still you know clonipa to the ANC and that was you know they're not ready to to, to do that yet, and. But the problem I think that, that Zuma encountered, as well as that overall liberation <coughs> solidarity, was the fact that his relations with Kasatu very quickly de deteriorated, that the deal between him and Kasatu started to break down almost as soon as he got in, that he wasn't fulfilling his side of the bargain, they thought. And Kasatu started to talk about the possibility of um, pulling out of the ANC, which, which they wouldn't. I mean, it was, it's way, I don't think they were ever going to do it. But the very fact that they discussed it in public at conferences and things was was enough to, to, to make one realize that the deal between Zuma and Kasatu was starting to break down. And indeed, to a great extent, he's replaced them with Zulu nationalists as his as as a block, as as Inkata has collapsed essentially. It's it's its vote has almost disappeared now and, and it's split itself. So so um, w w we're at that stage now. I mean I mean there are people in this audience I know who think that, that we those of you who follow politics in Zimbabwe will know that there's, um, there's a, the next meeting about Zimbabwe, the SADC meeting about Zimbabwe, is actually this Saturday, at which point probably everything I've just said will be proved resoundingly wrong, which I, which I would be delighted if that were the case, because Zuma has been talking very tough. Um, he has been talking tough. But my worry is that he talks tough whenever the West puts pressure on him and says, you know, we've really got to get a resolution here. He says, oh, don't, 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 don't unsettle it. We're on the verge of something here. Don't, you know, please back off. We're just about to, you know, and that's what, and every time that happens, the West says, all right, all right, and they back off. And then nothing happens, and it's just drawn out and more and more and more. Um, and and I, 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 we'll see what happens on Saturday, whether, whether Mugabe has really read the Riot Act. But even if he is, I'm really not sure what happens next um, in terms, you know, in terms of the GNU, there are so many variables, and the real problem with trying to speculate what's going to happen in Zimbabwe is the problem that we already identified, which is that we've got this one person who, you know, we've got a cult, we've got a Mugabe cult, whether we like it or not, and if you step back from the problem for a minute, forget about the MDC, just imagine for a moment that you're in ZANU-PF, 
and, and you're trying to manage and you want to stay in power, you know, you suspend morality and everything else. You know, what would you do if you went to McKinsey's or something, management, con management consultants and said, we've got this problem, we've got this um, political party in Southern Africa and we've got a leader who's been there for more than 30 years and we've never had another leader and he's 87 and he's going to die and, you know, how do we survive as a party? How do we survive his death? And, and I, I'm sure what you would be told is the first thing you do is nominate a successor as quickly as possible. And, and you know, not, not sort of, not like Putin, a real, I mean, not like Putin, but a real successor. And try and inculcate him with as much of your own authority as you can and say, this is my guy. Find someone young, younger, vital, but if possible, with a liberation history to some extent, someone who can say, yes, I, you know, I fought in the war too, but is also a technocrat and doesn't have blood on his hand, isn't, 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 isn't like... Solomon Majuru or Emerson Monongagwa, all these people, all you know, all involved in Gokurahundi and other things, and, and just as just as morally culpable. Um, and then you would you would use the, the Chiadzwa diamonds, which have conveniently just come on um, on tap. I mean, the Chiadzwa diamonds uh, are, in my view, one of the worst things to happen in Zimbabwe for a long time because I think. I think that in, two, in, in 2008, when I, was, when I was observing those elections and when they spun out of control you know, so savagely, um, there was a point just before that when I flew out there uh, where it looked like Mugabe was you know, genuinely, I think there really was a 10-day period where you know, he, just, he just suddenly realized the extent of the vote against him and, and, and was ready to throw the towel in. Um, what's so interesting, and I have no explanation for this, is that at that point, um, ironically, if they had conceded and if they had just gracefully accepted defeat, um, they would probably really, A, have survived as a party and B, Mugabe's position would probably have been um, secure as the sort of father of the country and whatever. He, would have, he wouldn't have been, I don't think he would have been um, humiliated or degraded or whatever. I think he would have been, you know, and certainly from all the MDC people I've spoken to at the time, there were more than that. And, and I saw the exit packages. I mean, I know what was in them and they were very, very generous. They weren't seeking to pauperize the ZANU-PF elite by any means. And I think a lot of them would have survived in business and, and were being allowed to keep farms and all sorts of things. But weirdly, the campaign of torture that then that they then launched, you know, a, a campaign of torture on an industrial scale. That if you talk to people at the ICC and international prosecutors, are pretty much all of a mind that it rose to the level of a crime against humanity. And also, you know, you you can call Zimbabwe many things, but one of the things you can't ever call it throughout the farm invasions and throughout the torture thing, you can't call it anarchy. Zimbabwe is not anarchy. In Zimbabwe things happen for a reason. Orders are given, there are hierarchies, this is the way it works. It's not Liberia or Sierra Leone or whatever, those countries when they were in their wars. This is not what happens in Zimbabwe. And in that sense, you do have, you do, I think you have, you also have very, very well recorded examples. I mean, it, you know, the, the people who were, who, the, peop the, the mass rape, the torture, even the deaths, you have sworn statements, affidavits, eyewitnesses. You, you know, here you have, I, I, I would venture, possibly the best documented um, crimes against humanity, humanity uh, you know, in Africa. This is not going around ex post facto, you know, as, you know, investigators had to do in places like Liberia sometimes five, seven years afterwards trying to kind of reconstruct what happened and who's, you know, who did who to what. We have this. It's all there. It's contemporaneous. I mean, it's, it's legally astonishingly persuasive. But it puts ZANU-PF and, in fact, any negotiators in a terrible position because whereas Gukurahundi, the, the Matsbilan massacres, are time-barred 
for the ICC. The ICC can't get at them. It can't be retroactive to that degree. These 2008, um, um, this these torture and rape and the, the crimes against humanity in 2008 absolutely are their domain. Now, at the moment, they haven't done anything because the UN Security Council won't mandate them to do it. Um, and to South Africa's great shame, when it was a rotating member on the Security Council, it helped to vote down any, any further action against Mugabe, which I think you know, is, is a moral stain on, on, on the South African government. But it, it puts ZAN and PF in a terrible position now because even if there are, and I don't necessarily think there are, but sort of huge reformist people in ZAN and PF who are just gagging to do a deal, there is, there is, there is the, the, the prospect of the ICC will now sit there. And it doesn't matter what the MDC promised them in terms of immunity from prosecution. The MDC, it's not up to the MDC to give them immunity from prosecution. They can give them immunity from prosecution in Harare, in Zimbabwe, but they can't. They can't keep them against the, They can't do that for The Hague. The Hague is going to sit there. Sorry, I'm really sorry. Sure. Oh, sure. Sorry. Yeah, let me. I beg your pardon. Um, I'll finish this. I'll finish up very quickly. Um, so, so the weird thing that happens there is that after 2008, we're in a situation where now ZANU-PF really does have a problem in terms of losing power, and I worry that um, that 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 makes them almost more determined somehow to to, to stay in power, what, whatever it takes. Um, so I hope we're proved wrong on Saturday, but right now I feel somewhat bleak about the prospects. So thank you. Right, well, we've got now about, um, I think, about 15 minutes, is that right, for questions. Um, and there, is, there are drinks afterwards, so please ask questions, don't make statements, because you can, you can do that later on. And I'll, I'll take, uh, take questions in threes. Um, okay, one gentleman up there, two gentlemen. Anyone else? Anyone yeah, well, we'll start with you, Judith. Right, um, I'm going to ask you a question, Jack. I had the pleasure of asking Ian Smith in 2000, and it's this. If I wanted to help um, Zimbabwe, because I'm actually a member of my local Labour Party yet, unfortunately we're in opposition now, but uh, if you wanted go, me to go back to Labour Party and say, what would you like me to say to Labour Party to help Zimbabwe um, get Mugabe and Zanakir out of office? What would you suggest um, you say? Right. And the second thing, sorry, from here. You, you had a question. Uh, you spoke. Um, thank you, actually, for your very eloquent message. Uh, one thing I'd like to know: what was your experience for the local people in Zimbabwe? What's their reaction to what's been happening over the last decade or so? Uh, I was fairly recently in Zimbabwe and we went to Koromanzi Secondary School and I was immensely impressed. Here was a good headmaster. He incidentally did beat the children when he needed to, not very often. Um, the discipline was great, the children were polite, the standards were good, the pay was very, very small for those teachers and, and they had a good mix of of, 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 of kids, you know, from rich backgrounds and, and poor backgrounds. Uh, I, the, the question I really want to ask is whether really the world should be thinking that, oh, we've got to pile the help 
onto the new Zimbabwe as it changes, however it's going to change. Um, whether it isn't best to think that the Zimbabweans are really very capable of helping themselves, and we don't really want to water that down at all. Um, right, let me, I'll, I'll be short on these ones since I was rather too loquacious before, um, excuse me. Um, I mean, how to help, it's, it, that's, it's difficult. The thing to bear in mind with Zimbabwe, and I, which I was bear in mind, is that, is that actually, you know, what one's going for in Zimbabwe is not regime change. What one's going for in Zimbabwe is democracy. I mean, let the Zimbabweans decide who they want to rule them. So, you know, the, the problem is that sometimes these things get mixed up. I mean, it's, it's easy to happen when you've had one, you know, you had political monopoly for, for that <laughs> for that long, um, but it's you know that that the solution in Zimbabwe, the solution in Zimbabwe is relatively simple, which is a free and fair election, uh, you know, d done, d monitored, etc., etc. That's that's the that's the solution initially, and it's a very simple one, and that's all that, that one's going for. And, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Um, the local people's reaction, I mean, it, it feeds straight into that. Is that that Zimbabweans have tried to vote? You know, they tried to vote in two thousand and eight. Um, and the way that they wanted, and in the second round, we saw what happened to them. I mean, that's that's, and Zimbabweans, you know, I think do live in fear, and they live in fear. You see, whenever the, whenever elections are talked about, as they have been recently, to, that they're going to be imminent again, then you start to see an uptick in violence, and you can see that the you know the various human rights NGOs who monitor this, you can absolutely see it, and you can see it recently. We've seen a whole number of things going on in Mbari and elsewhere where this starts to ha where this starts to happen. Um, so you know. I I think, I think the local people, for many of them, and it reminds me of being in Eastern Europe before the wall came, came down, is that they, are, they spend all their time and all their life and all their energy trying to survive. The fact that the Zimbabwe dollar has now been, uh, has now been um, ditched and we now have US dollar and that, that there, is, there are actually things in the shops doesn't mean, it's fine if you go, there's a Western tourist and you go, wow, there's stuff in the shops, but you go just a little distance outside and see how people are struggling to pay to, to, to survive that they can't there may be things in the stores but a lot of them can't afford those things so and because industry has been so badly affected nearly everything is imported and everything is very expensive Zimbabwe is now more expensive to live in than South Africa so people people are struggling enormously I mean in a case in point you know you talk about Goromanzi school which is a great school um, one of many but I mean a particularly great school um, that the average salary for a teacher, I think, when I last looked, I think is 171 US dollars, and the poverty datum line is sitting at 500 dollars. So you know how that, that's the problem. I mean, one doesn't, you know, one needs to help fund these things, and one doesn't need to, you know, reinvent the wheel. I think the Zimbabwean, the Zimbabwean teachers and, and Zimbabwean parents and Zimbabwean kids are all astonishingly eager to learn. Um, uh, and, but 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 you know, many of them don't have toilets. They don't have. A, they, you have 15 kids to a school book. You have. Just you have logistical problems that are that are you know, the, the, the 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 education system collapsed to such a great extent logistically that that has to be um, that that has to be restored. Um, that would be my view. One, two, three. Uh, basically, I want to ask about HIV/AIDS. I was at the International AIDS Conference in 2004, and the situation was was dire there. I think there were two NGOs from Zimbabwe represented. And uh, we have a situation now, for example, Chelsea and Westminster here, which is one of the leading teams in the world, works closely in Botswana. But as, as I understand it, which is very fitting to confirm this, is, is the global farm is basically not operating at all in Zimbabwe, and the situation is just getting worse. I would thought that would be uh, another case for the International Criminal Court, quite frankly. I think this lady. Yes. 
Um, thank you very much for the presentation. I was just wondering if you would be able to explain a bit more about this uh, fund or channel uh, from where aid can go through into Zimbabwe, how it works and, and if it is working. And finally, Thank you very much for a very interesting history background which I could relate to as someone who grew up in Zimbabwe, born in Gweru, experienced the uh, Gugura Bundi and uh, over 40, so I have lived it before the independence and have uh, gone to Zimbabwe quite often, so can't see the difference from when I was a teenager. My fear is what does the future hold for Zimbabwe, given our history, which you've beautifully. On one hand, you have the over 40s like me, some who still think that Mugabe has actually done the best thing ever by bringing back the land. And given our history, it, only, it was only probably 15 to 8, after 2000 that, that we had a black person in, in cricket. So people look at that. And on the other hand, you have the 30s who will very, be very pro-MDC and um, to bring everyone together. So we, because now we, can, we shouldn't be looking back. It's about moving forward. How do we collectively, the 40s, the 30s, black and white, get together and make a difference and change Zimbabwe? Um, it's a lot to be getting on with. Um, well, just um, I mean, I mean, the, 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 my understanding is that there are there are ARV programs in Zimbabwe. They're very small. They're hugely inadequate. They are growing. Um, the UN, I know, is, is involved in it, but but it's it's tiny. It's tiny. I mean, they did have some breakthroughs in, in one of the figures I saw. There was a curious um, downturn in the in the rate of HIV in Zimbabwe, which I'm not uh, qualified to discuss because I mean, I'm not an expert, but I, I do know that what had happened was that at a certain point, because Zimbabweans um, uh, were so malnourished and so, so, so poor that um, when they got HIV, they tended to go to full-blown AIDS very quickly and then die very quickly so that they were alive for a lot less time to, um, to, to, part, to potentially pass it on, certainly. Um, but the, I, I know there, there are ARV programs, but, but they are um, enormously inadequate. I mean, I think that, that you know, the Harvard study of, the, of the, um, the South African HIV AIDS deaths during that period where Thabo Mbeki was in his AIDS denial thing is a very interesting document. If you haven't read it, you should read it, because, I mean, it, it manages to draw a direct correlation between the period of time that Thabo Mbeki refused to, to get behind ARV and the number of people who died during that period before that South Africa, which is the one country in, Afri in Africa which really can you know, launch an ARV and, and subsequently has done um, pr pr program. Um, I mean, the funding in Zimbabwe generally has been problematic insofar as one of the ways that the GNU is not working, one of the many ways it's not working, is that um, is that the Reserve Bank hasn't been audited, that Gideon Gomo is still sitting there, that n none, of that's, none of that's happened. And so there are bizarre ways in which money goes in, money goes via the UN, it goes, you know, when it's going to, you know, MDC-run ministries like, like um, Tendai Beatty at Finance or David Coltart at Education, um, that there are, there are ways in which money, money goes in so that it can be properly audited and make sure that it goes to where it should be going. But, but it's a somewhat, um, it is a somewhat complicated uh, um, situation at the moment where you have essentially two parties who, for the most part, don't get on but are supposed to be co-governing. So, I mean, you have some very bizarre situations where, where the ministers don't really talk to each other even though they should be, they should be um, coordinating things. Um, and the future of Zimbabwe, you know, I, I do honestly think, I think that if, 
if if democracy were restored um, and Zimbabwe were normalized and and um, investment came in and whatever, the people generally get cracking and making money and doing business and whatever. And those those divisions between born frees and non-born frees, or whatever, they sort of go away. I mean, they don't go away, but they don't become um, they don't become ap- key in all of this. That people just get on with their lives, which is sort of what they what they want to be. Part of the problem is that when there are not enough resources. You, you battle for the people who you have to get access to those resources, and when those res- when that's controlled politically, then you get these sort of you know these two parties just sitting in perpetual opposition. But once n- normality is restored, that tends you know like most countries, it, in between election cycles, it's not really the defining thing, and people don't talk about it um, all the time. I mean, I do think that. Um, that the other key, since we're here, the other key role, and I've no idea how it will happen, but the other key role is the role that's played by the diaspora and the extent to which, because the diaspora, more than anybody else, have been away, have worked in the you know, wider world, have, have, have often done very well, have, you know, have flourished and, and got all sorts of experience and, 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 and um, uh, 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 qualifications. Um, and there's pretty much no diaspora return um, uh, program that's ever worked. You can't really get diasporas to return if they don't. Well, there have been schemes in, over the years of trying to get you know, Ghanaian uh, doctors to go back and promising them salaries that they were getting in America and things. And they go back for a bit and then they... they people go back eventually because they, they're homesick, because they want to go back, you know, because that's their home. And, 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 and they don't all go back to begin, you know, in a rush at the beginning. They wait and they see, you know, is it going to work? Isn't it going to work? They start sending money back. They send certain family members back. But then if it starts to work, then, then they do go back. And so that's also going to be a key. And I think the diaspora in a position to sort of bring a different tradition. They've been out of the country to kind of, you know, not to, to be ossified on one side or, or another. Yeah. Gentlemen up there, anyone else? Does anyone also want, as other gentlemen, to too? If anyone's got a question on the state of the, as, as we are being sponsored here by Cara, about the education system, that would be useful. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you very much for uh, the point that you've given. Uh, I'll pour nothing in independence, so some of the stuff that you talked about was stuff that I've probably gone through but didn't really Are you, I, and, you, and you need someone of my enormously great age to yes, because <laughs> I lived through it all. Yes. It's always a good <laughs> um, do you feel that sometimes um, the, the West uh, is uh, seen as a, um, it acts like a big brother constantly telling the younger brothers to do this, do this, do that, do this, do that. But sometimes uh, you find that uh, in Africa and in Zimbabwe, um, sometimes uh, the younger brother feels they don't really want to listen to what the big brother is saying all the time, um, you know, which is where I think uh, you get some of the problems because I think the, the West is uh, a bit tainted in itself in that uh, because of the double standards, such as you see things like the West say that they, they never had intentions for regime change, and then when the WikiLeaks come out, you see that uh, they wanted regime change in, in, in the first place. And, you know, I think this sort of gives people like Mugabe that opportunity to say, you know, you guys were talking about regime change, and you actually do want regime change, so should we really trust you in anything else? Do you think that affects uh, how things are going in Zimbabwe? Because it seems sometimes the West seems to be meddling. Thank you. And I think this gentleman's question. 
You have not mentioned China. Can mm -hmm. you give any indication of how you feel about the creeping Chinese influence in Africa, and particularly in Zimbabwe? Um, sure. Okay. I mean, yes. I think there's there's all sorts of um, uh, um, sensitivities with with the West, and I explained at the beginning of the talk. You know, I think the West has been inconsistent in its overall thing and has certain responsibilities historically. And and I haven't even gone into the economic ones. And there's all manner of other stuff going on. However, you know, I do think that it's a bit rich for Mugabe and people to say, oh, the West just, just wants regime change. I mean, it, it, here's one way to, 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 to make the West shut up. Have free and fair elections. Let Zimbabweans, let Zimbabweans vote for who they want. I mean, it, is that such a scary prospect that we, we've been going on for all these years without allowing it to happen? Just, you know, properly counseled, no intimidation. It's for Zimbabweans to decide who's going to rule Zimbabwe, not for Washington or, or anybody else, but also not for Mugabe and the ZANU-PF Politburo. It's, it's have a free and fair election. That's all. I mean, it's, it's simple, and, and we'll see. I mean, the MDC might not last forever. The MDC may split again. Other parties may come into existence that we don't know about. Good heavens, ZANU-PF may split. Let's face it, one of the problems that Mugabe has in, 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 in saying who's going to, you know, whether every time Emerson Monongagwa or, or Joyce Majuro or whoever seems to be the main candidate, he, they seem to get destabilized or whatever, is that it, they, they have the possibility of splitting ZANU-PF if it doesn't, you know, that the losers of that particular thing might not. So there's all manner of different electoral, th you know, political things that are possible. Just have an election. It's, I mean, a free and fair election is, is simple. And whatever else one, one criticizes the ANC for, whatever anybody wants to criticize the ANC in South Africa, the amazing thing about being there during these local elections was there were South Africans in great numbers going to the polls, not being intimidated, no one telling them how to vote, you know. And, it, and, and I felt, you know, I, I sat there as a Zimbabwean and I felt kind of, I felt like weeping, you know, I just looked at it and I said, you know, and the, 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 the turnout wasn't that great and I felt like going to South Africans and saying, for God's sake, vote, you know, you understand how important this is, Zimbabweans have been trying to do this for so long under these fair conditions and they can't, so, so that's, you know, that's the answer and it's the extent that the West has been agitating for that, I don't think that's a bad idea since, since you know, that, that it's been difficult to achieve from within yeah. Zimbabwe. Um, the, 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 the one issue that I think is very complicated at the moment is the issue of sanctions. And I think that Mugabe manages to, I mean, even the fact that I've just called them by the shorthand of sanctions, when frankly they're sort of pathetic. They're, they're 200 people and they affect their bank accounts and their ability to travel to certain Western countries. It's really not a big deal. And it's certainly not enough to, not, not enough to hurt ZANU-PF. But it's a very useful tool that Robert Mugabe uses to say, to stop him from bringing in any other reforms within within the GPA saying I'm not going to do anything more till sanctions are dropped I'm not going to do any more sanctions are dropped um, and that's it's become a kind of a, 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 a sort of it's an irrelevance um, I almost think that what one you know the problem is how do you drop them now without appearing to reward Mugabe for for recalcitrance and I think one of the possibilities which I'll get in trouble for even mentioning is where one does something like say okay what if we drop sanctions for three months, during which, during which time all the outstanding GPA stuff needs to go in, and if they haven't, after three months they come back, you know, that it's just because he says, I'm not going to do any more until you drop them, fine, take him at his word and say, here's three months, let's, let's do all the things that are outstanding, one after the other, let's take them off, if they don't happen, then we put them back, you know, then, because you've called his bluff in that sense. So that's one, I mean, that's a tactical thing, but it's a, it, 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 it tends to be a problem. 
China is an interesting one. I mean, China is certainly in, in the diamond fields. Ch China is the, the, is the one nation that's in there in Shiazhou and Marangi. Um, they, they have set up that, that area is cordoned off. That, that money is not going into the fiscus at the moment. It's not going to Tandibiti's ministry. Um, I, I think that money is clearly going to Zanapir Philippe, to the generals, to the army, to whatever, with the Chinese skimming off um, the, their, own, their own amount. I'm also fascinated to see in all of this um, indigenization legislation that's going on and in all the, 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 the especially with the mines and things it, it, it affects foreign foreign businesses it affects white businesses unless you're Chinese then it doesn't seem to affect you at all you seem to you know it doesn't affect the Chinese so how, how does that work I mean that that they're somehow supra they're above they're above all that I, I I'm I'd, I'm not fearful of the Chinese influence in the long term in the very long term, because I think they tend to mishandle Africa. They're very bad at race relations. I think a lot of the Chinese, the way they behave on the ground, is that they're not good to their labor. I think a lot of them are, are, are quite racist in the way that they behave. And they give very bad deals. They like no-bid deals. And instead of just, just offering a certain amount of money for a mine or whatever it is, they, they, they try and do it with apples and pears. They say, well, we'll build a bridge and a hospital and a road and a this, and we'll give you some money. And, then, and you can never sort of figure out well, how much is it actually worth. And then the hospital falls to pieces, and the road washes away, and the bridge falls down and whatever. I mean, it's just, you know, you, you, they, 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 they're basically on a resource hunt. But I think ultimately this thing will, this, this cycle will go through, you know, I mean, for Africa in general, it's great to have the Chinese there bidding against the West. It's great. Have, bring all these companies in and go to the highest, you know, and, and have proper auctions and things before, you know, when you're, when you're getting them in to, 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 to bid for mineral concessions and all that kind of thing. You know, it's great. You know, bring one, bring all, and get the best deal. But don't let China come in and steal the stuff from you in the way that it was stolen before by colonials. It seems nuts to do that all over again. So, so I mean, I think at the moment they rely on the Chinese because no one else is interested in investing in Zimbabwe because it's still in a very unstable position. I've actually just come back to Ethiopia where the Chinese are building the roads and as you say, you know, no one else is building the roads. So uh, there was just one thing I think Dr. Agasso wanted to pick up on the Lady Dare's question about the fund, was that right? Yeah. Right, yes, oh, yes. I think, yeah, about um, uh, thanks Peter. Um, very fascinating uh, presentation I think and in many ways I have to say wearing my own political analyst yet. I think uh, very balanced in many ways in terms of looking at the challenges. So, thank you for that. Um, I think, first, the, the gentleman behind me who spoke about Goromonzi and, and the lady who spoke about the fund, where the fund, where, where funds can be channeled. Um, I mean, Zimbabwe is a, is a bleak story in many ways, but one of the things that doesn't come out very often in, in the stories uh, is the pockets. Um, uh, of resilience, uh, to use a, a phrase coined a few years ago in this country, uh, some green shoots <laughs> of recovery uh, that you see um, in different parts of the country. And you know, those of us who are out here in the diaspora uh, are very humbled by the way people have gone on about the, their business in Zimbabwe. Uh, education is one of the things that Zimbabweans cherish so much. Yeah. They will try everything, they will probably want to eat but kids will have to go to school. They'll have to wear school uniform. And so I think it's important, and wearing my car hat here, is to say, you know, there are those things that are happening. And uh, uh, it's important to support 
I think it's not. It's not. We took the position that you cannot wait until the day when Mugabe goes and say we're, we're going to do this. You've got to start build on those things that are already there in 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 the system. And so what we have been doing, those of us in the diaspora, those of us who are privileged enough to be in positions in academic institutions and so forth, are working with CARA, which, uh, by the way, is doing a fantastic job in Zimbabwe. We went to Zimbabwe last year, uh, spent about two weeks uh, traversing universities in Zimbabwe, talking to academics, and seeing people who were working with nothing, but still managing to produce very good practice. And that was very humbling as an experience. And so two weeks ago, um, as uh, Professor Schulamax will say, we sat down with uh, a few thousand uh, US dollars which we managed to distribute uh, through the program that we've just launched with the support of the NAFU Foundation, uh, giving grants, $5,000, for example, for a person to pursue a fellowship or for a faculty grant. If you imagine, as Peter said, that somebody can $171 a month, $5,000 might seem very little money for us who are here, but that's a lot of money. Uh, that's getting into the system. But it's little by little. There's not, you, we cannot do everything at the same time. So what you're trying to do is to encourage, especially my brothers and sisters, the Zimbabweans who are out in the diaspora, to say, there is something you can do. And CARA here is an organization that has been focusing, uh, and I, I will embarrass you if she's around, but Laura Winter, uh, she's a fascinating human being. Those of us who work with them are very humbled by the work that she does. And she's been pushing us, and you know, every time we may not answer calls for 10 days, but she will keep calling. <laughs> and we're doing things. And I think it's important that we get people to uh, get together, pull the resources that are available, and to ensure. Uh, and just one last point, the <coughs> point that the lady spoke about how Zimbabweans can do. I was in a leadership uh, seminar a few months ago um, at Common Purpose International. And one of the issues that I raised at the end of the conference was that of the 30 people that were there, virtually all of them were black Zimbabweans. And I say, I don't think that when we want to build a Zimbabwe, which will be inclusive, a Zimbabwe, which encourages cohesion and working together, we have to see more people because we grew up in an independent Zimbabwe, in a multiracial Zimbabwe. And we want to see young Zimbabweans from all backgrounds, Asian, white, whatever, to be able to work together with us. And it has to start with us, those of us in the diaspora. And I, I would like to encourage the parents who are here, the young ones who are here to say, let's get involved in these things without any barriers between us, because that way, then we'll be able to make a change in our own country. Thank you very much. Can I say thank you? I found it absolutely fascinating um, as well, and I think I, I think Dr. Julie Marks is going to end this um, session. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, my friend has just partly been stolen by Alex, which is wonderful. Would um, <laughs> much better than I did. I um, As you've heard, I am the chair of the Zimbabwe Committee, and the function of Para is. As the name says, it's the Council for Assisting Refugee Academics, and that's our starting point, and it's our remit. In the case of Zimbabwe, we work very closely, both with the diaspora and from within Zimbabwe, not so much that partly to help refugee academics in this country, which is Paris, but the Zimbabwe program 
is really very concerned with what happens to the institutional infrastructure, to what happens to universities in Zimbabwe. It was something we were very aware of, for example, even during World War II, when the universities were collapsing in Europe, what was going to happen thereafter. So you can hope that if things have come up, you should also have on your sides what is going on in the country. And so what we, and it really is Laura more than anybody else, she has, she looks terribly embarrassed. I won't go on too long, but she has a very special magic. And what she has done is to work very intensively, both with Zimbabweans and diaspora in this country and even further afield in South Africa, where there are so many Zimbabwean academics. And she's been into Zimbabwe and worked with the vice chancellors to find out what they want to see happen. Now last week, we, was it last week, the week before, we had a committee meeting and the representative of Nuffield came along to that meeting and started out by saying, well, you know, we're not really all that interested in paying for technology. And then the first request came from a health science unit and they said, we need stethoscopes. And she changed her tune. She went out completely moved by the level of what people needed. And what was so impressive is these were letters, uh, proposals that came in from heads of faculty, from heads of school, where every little bit you knew was going to count, it was going to make a difference. We had a ridiculously small sum of money. I mean, $5,000, what does it amount to here? But you knew that people were going to make use of it. And already, Laura's had letters from people saying, we've managed to make them. This is fantastic. This is going to change our life. Gives people that energy to go on when they know that somebody's listening and these very basic things can be taken care of. So I think what is really important about this project is the extent to which we've been able to work with Zimbabweans here, South Africa. We've taken the views of those Zimbabweans on what they want to see happen. Now, in addition to the grants that we have been able to make to the faculty, there were also individual grants for Zimbabweans, particularly those Zimbabweans who were academics at home and who are now doing all sorts of other things in the diaspora because they don't have access to um, academic positions to help them re-engage with academic life and re-engage with academics in Zimbabwe. And this is being done through distance learning, through a virtual lecture theatre that all has managed to get set up, through persuading people in the diaspora here, South Africa, to give lectures which can be beamed back, or indeed to apply for grants, to go back to Zimbabwe and teach for a certain amount of time, or to engage in mentoring at a distance. So this is really the background, if you like, to why we wanted Peter to come and talk to us about the more general context in which we are working. And it's clearly not an easy terrain, but so far touch wood. Um, we have been able to make some headway. We've had a grant for one year from Nuffield. We clearly must go on with this program. So can I just add a plea at the end of this, and I'm no good at asking for money, but really, um, there's a little black book which has room to make a donation at the back. We can get the website of Tara from this, 
to make a donation. And there'll be somebody at the door very happy to take. However little, as I say, we could raise $5,000 tonight or out of what we have got from tonight and thereafter. We could support another faculty, maybe not buying stethoscopes, but certainly being able to create handbooks, to be able to invest in a laptop computer, whatever. And um, it really, every little bit helps. Please, please help us to do that. Now, I'm really supposed to be saying thank you to <laughs> So, um, I hope the thank you will cover those who will make a donation. I'm also very pleased to say that the Deputy, the Melbourne Deputy Ambassador has uh, been with us this evening, and I hope he's found it as illuminating as we have. There are a lot of people to say thank you to. We've had a lot of thank yous already. We must first and foremost thank Peter for a most eloquent and informative lecture. I have really heard the audience stay out of time and sit <laughs> still. Nobody, nobody walked out. Um, secondly, I would like to thank um, Baroness von Carter for being such a wonderful chair and coming along. I, I, I didn't, didn't, I didn't control it, did I? <laughs> <laughs> The LSE and Sue Onslow very much for collaborating with us in this evening. I should just say there's something very appropriate about having a para event at LSE. Not only because, of course, William Beveridge was the director of the LSE when he discovered the horrors of what, the ha what was happening in Central Europe and started what became the Society for the Protection of Science. And Birmingham is now more humbly called CARA. Uh, but also because William Beveridge managed to persuade the teachers of the LSE all to make a donation to Tara. It was taken off their check. Now, this was in the 30s. It was taken off their salaries, rather. This was in the 30s, the time of the Depression. Every member of staff in the LSE made a contribution to the society. If you could get every... <laughs> Thank you all very much indeed for being here this evening. Thank you for everybody who has this place, Laura, her assistants, uh, particularly Julie, and many others one aspect, but Peter's book is outside. Ah, <laughs> 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 <la